Thank you, Sarah. Jesus is the Christ, the truth that all must wrestle with. And yet as we do, we see different responses, some coming to believe and worship, others fearing and rejecting. And we'll see both of those in the text of Scripture as we go back to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn there again to Matthew chapter 2. So I was preparing this week, my mind kind of went back just a few days, it's now been over a week, but at the time when I was preparing it was just a few days, uh, to something our family had the opportunity to do together. We kind of reached the end of the summer and usually just look for something to kind of enjoy together as a family before school starts and the routine settles in, which has its positive sides and also then kind of pushes out some of the other things because life is busy with homework and schoolwork and practices and music lessons and on and on it goes. And so uh, last Saturday, we took some time, went out to Lancaster, and uh, one of the things we did as a family was our first time doing together. I'm sure some of you are pros. We had one child who had done it before, the rest of us had not. We went to an escape room together as a family. Uh, where, you know, evidently it's fun to be locked, not really, but put into this room and told, okay, in order to leave, you have to find these things and solve these clues. And so we've got objects to find and we've got messages to decode and activities to accomplish. And we're told we have an hour to do it. And of course, um, if you kind of know Melinda and I, and it creeps into our kids as well, and they say, and here's the fastest time it's been done. And we're like, okay, it's on, the goal's been set right? And so uh, we got into it. We did make it out. We did make it out on time. And uh, as a dad, for whatever reason, I didn't expect this. I, I planned it. I set it up. But I didn't expect to walk away going, that was really fun. I just thoroughly enjoyed it, in part because I got to watch my kids do different things. And uh, with each of them, you know, some were decoding messages, others were finding objects, and they were just kind of jumping in, solving different parts. I didn't expect it to be such a collectively participatory, enjoyable experience for all of us, and I just enjoyed it. Um, you could say it this way, I enjoyed the journey. I kind of laugh at thinking about the destination. You know, a lot of times you're like, I, I want to get to the destination, I want to get to the destination. When we did that, the destination was, okay, you get to go home. Like, we get out. Like, okay, great, fun, we, we solved it. Um, but really, it was the process of working through all of that that was enjoyable. So we come back to the text of Matthew, we're reminded that Matthew is driving at a destination. And as he does so, he's reminding us of clues that the prophets gave throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's very frequent here in Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 to go, This remember what the prophet said? That was fulfilled by Jesus. Remember what the prophet says? That was fulfilled by Jesus. And he's piecing these things together to tell them and to tell us Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised one. He is your deliverer. He is God himself. And yet, as we get to the text today, we're introduced to some individuals who are on a journey, uh, a very long journey. We're not told exactly how long, um, but their response when they get to the destination, if you will, ought to be instructive for us, because we're going to follow along as the wise men first go to Jerusalem, they speak with Herod, to ultimately arriving at the place where the child Jesus is. And I hope as we consider their journey 
and their response when they get to the destination, when they get to Jesus, that we will be challenged in thinking about our own walk with Christ as well. That it would be marked by joy. You know, I was tempted to ask you um, this morning, like when was the last time you just were super excited about something? You were joyful. I realize, you know, there are points where when we come to worship God, and I realize it's different than what's going on in the text in Matthew 2, but nonetheless, we can make the argument from the Psalms repeatedly. There ought to be a sense of going, you know what? I am just thrilled at who God is. I'm humbled that he would interact with me and that my response is just one of joy filled worship. We've looked at the text of Matthew now a couple weeks ago, reminding ourselves in the name Jesus, names Jesus and Christ, that God has sovereignly kept his word. The Christ has come. That same theme shows up again today in Matthew 2. And not only has God sovereignly kept his word, God lovingly rescues people. He is Jesus, the Lord who saves you know what? He is interested in redeeming fallen people. The right response to Jesus, the right response to Christ is worship. Just, again, think, we're, we're not at Christmas. And, you know, we're in the beginning of September, and yes, we're in Matthew chapter 2, right? But you think about those texts that we often go to at Christmas time, and we're reminded that angels worshiped. Glory to God in the highest. Shepherds went and worshiped. Simeon worshipped. Anna worshipped. And today, as we encounter the Magi going to Bethlehem to meet Jesus, to see where the child is, their response again is one of worship. To realize God has been so kind to us in providing salvation through Jesus, our response ought to be, God, I just want to praise you. And yet far too often, we are more self-interested than that. He's kind of an accessory or at times an intrusion into our life, and our response ought not be so, ought not be that way. Today we look at Jesus as worthy of wise men's worship. So we watch this contrast take place in chapter 2 between the response of Herod and the response of these wise men or magi. As we come to verses 1 and 2, let's begin by looking at a worshipful inquiry. A worshipful inquiry Right at the beginning of verse 1, we're given the setting. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, omnisciently again, the author of Scripture uh, tells us, here's where Jesus was born. Here's who was reigning in that time. Uh, in the verses that follow, both of those details become greater uh, focal points of the text to go, here's where it is, here's who is reigning. But right out of the gate and looking at the setting, it's worth us thinking about who is this Herod? Some maybe are a little more historically wired, like, oh, I know exactly who this is, or I've heard so many messages, I know exactly who this is. But let me for a moment remind you, this is Herod the Great. And while he is reigning in Jerusalem, he's not a Jew. His father was an Idumean, his mother was an Arabian, and so the only way that he's reigning there is because he's been appointed by an outside power, Rome has put Herod the Great in charge in Jerusalem over the Jewish people. He does try to appease them at points by uh, doing different building projects, such, such as the temple, uh, but he's also rejected, realizing this is not who is to be reigning 
over God's people based on God's promise. And again, if you think about the book of Matthew, Matthew spends so much time going, Jesus is the son of David, the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. Where when we look at Herod, Herod is not a son of David. In his appointment as king, he was dealing with the political instability of that time. For him, particularly, not just because of the situation around him in political instability, but also because of his personality, he was a very jealous individual. In fact, as you may know, Herod was known for putting to death his own wife and two of his sons for fear of rivals, and then later a third son right before he died. This is a man who was so worried about what was going on and needed his authority so much that he had members of his own family put to death. He's a very wicked man, and certainly that shows up later in the text as we keep reading Hebrews, or Matthew chapter 2. Beyond the setting, notice those seeking at the end of verse 1 into verse 2. Uh, we're told, behold, and again, just a simple word like that ought to stop and grab our attention. Like, hey, stop. Look, pay attention to this. As we look at those seeking, we're directed first to their profession. There came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. That word underlying wise men is magus. It's the idea of why we sometimes refer to these men as magi. Uh, we get our, even our English word magic from that word in the original language. During that time and that day, though, I think it's important for us to understand who are these magi. Uh, because one of the things we deal with, and I guess we might as well just jump into it now because it's not December, it is September, is that we have these pictures that kind of get conjured in our mind of like, well, you know, the wise men, they were really devout church-going people, and they went to the synagogue, and they went to the temple, and they offered the feast. Maybe not, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but we do tend to go, okay, there were three, and they rode camels, and they were here to worship. Realize in that day, the Magi were often equated as astrologers. They were those who were looking to the stars for guidance, often within some kind of pagan priesthood or a royal court. We run into a couple other Magi, if you will, same word in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. And often there, they're translated as sorcerers. Okay? Elymas is a Magi, a Magus. Okay? Simon same idea, uh, Elemis and Bar-Jesus, same person. You know, we're not talking about people who have this wonderful religious profession. We're going, these are people who have a questionable background. And again, we're not given a lot of details, but we do know they came from the east. These were Gentile people who saw this star and have come to worship who they perceived to be a king, this newborn king. Again, we're not given a lot of details. We don't know their names. We don't know their number. We don't know their mode of transportation. Some of the details we often kind of add in after the fact. But we should realize this about them. God has sovereignly, mercifully, and miraculously worked to draw their attention to the birth of Jesus Christ. Because they come from the east. They come from afar. They come from outside the children of Israel to find out where this person is. And by the end, what I love about it is they are worshiping Jesus. It's just another reminder here as we get into these early chapters of Matthew that God is sovereignly working 
mercifully working to redeem people from all these different walks of life. He isn't just after the Jewish people, although he is after the Jewish people. He isn't just after men, he's after women, he's after those who are known, those who are unknown, much as we saw working our way through the genealogy in chapter 1. Beyond their profession, notice secondly their purpose. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, their purpose is raised by this question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Again, maybe take off your familiar Christian glasses for just a moment. Okay, Think about that question. He's going to come to Herod. They're going to enter Jerusalem going, where's the king of the Jews? How does that sit with someone like Herod? He could be very well inclined to say, I'm the king of the Jews, okay? But they've included one detail that clearly doesn't fit. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Not the one who's been appointed king of the Jews, but one who rightfully can occupy the throne because he is born as the one who is to be the king of the Jews. Their purpose was first raised by this question, but secondly, it's evidenced by their explanation. They, they proceed further, like there's not even a chance to answer here as they go, for we've seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. They're saying, we've been directed here. Miraculously, uniquely, they've seen a star that has guided them to the seek this newborn king. Their intention in that seeking is very clear. They are here to worship. They're not here to harm him as a threat. They are not here to pacify him and seek, uh, to seek to join with him as a political ally. They're not there to explore his wealth. They are here to give to him and to worship him. And I think it ought to stand out to us that having been directed by a star, there are these wealthy, important Gentiles traveling from outside of Israel a good distance to bring valued gifts and worship Jesus as king. God delights in reaching people. Don't, don't forget that. Like sometimes we put on very human lenses for almost everything that occurs and, and we miss the fact that God sovereignly, mercifully just sometimes reaches out and goes, I'm, I care about reaching people. I'll reach that person. I will show mercy to them. How did God reach Abraham? Right? Abram, Genesis 12. He wasn't looking for God. Again, we've talked about it before, Joshua 24 too. He, he grew up in a family of idol worshipers. And God reaches out to Abram and says, get up, I'm going to make you a great nation. Why? Because God is gracious. God is merciful. Even as I was preparing last week, I was thinking about stories in our own church of people who've shown up. Like even in the last few years, we come through COVID and there are people who are like, you know, I was at home, I was on YouTube, I was just watching videos, and the next video that met, loaded was a church service. And I decided to watch. And I came to know Christ as Savior. And shortly thereafter, we had the privilege of baptizing one whose testimony was a lot like that. You know what? Was that... How did that happen? God, because God works to see people reached. Here he has directed the wise men to where Jesus has been born. Having considered the worshipful inquiry of the Magi, secondly, let's look at a fearful insecurity in verse 3. 
fearful insecurity began with Herod. You'll notice first, it began with Herod. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Even the way the Spirit of God through Matthew is inspiring the Scripture, the irony is building, the tension is building. To go, where's he that's born king of the Jews? Now, when Herod the king heard these things, it's like, we have two kings. This is a problem. And as a result, Herod, this man we've already looked at as being very jealous, is troubled, internally agitated and concerned. We can understand that historically, even uh, not too distant in Israel's past at that point because of the Maccabean revolts. Herod would think, would seem to have a rival. And when compared to the response of the Magi in the text, Herod's response is going to be so different right? The Magi are like, there's a king? We have come to worship him. And Herod, as we get to the end of chapter 2, is going, how do I put this man to death? And can I just remind us again that even today we have a stark difference in how people approach Jesus. There are those who as God works and his spirit draws and his word is presented, come to believe. And then there are those who reject and say, I won't have him intrude in my life. I won't have anybody to worship over, or I won't have anybody to rule over me. Understanding these details leads to the sixth second expression of this fearful insecurity. The fearful insecurity not only began with Herod as king, secondly, it brought into Jerusalem. It says, and all Jerusalem with him. We're not told exactly all the details that are going through as to why Jerusalem is also troubled, but it's not hard for us to see at least two causes. One, they've come through a time of political instability in the not too distant past, and now they're being told, there's another king. Oh no, what's going to happen? There's that uncertainty, that instability. There might be potential rivals. But secondly, it would certainly also be true because how will their current ruler respond? Here's the one who's been willing to kill people in his own family. Again, we're not making too big of a deal out of that because as chapter 2 continues to unfold, he's going to put to death male children under the age of 2. This is a man who is incredibly erratic, jealous, So all Jerusalem is troubled as well. Again, we're reminded that propensity of mankind to go, when we know God, he's glorified not as God. We see that in the response of Herod here. Having considered the worshipful inquiry, the fearful insecurity, third, we encounter the biblical identity. Concerned with the question raised by the Magi, Herod seeks to answer his question in an interesting way. Perhaps it's just me, but uh, I find it ironic that Herod, hearing this answer, is like, you know what? We need a spiritual answer. Let's consult people who can go to the scriptures and tell us where this person is to be born. He doesn't question whether this person really has been born. He doesn't go to other sources. He says, what we need are the priests and the scribes. Again, as we look at the biblical identity, consider first the people consulted. He goes to the spiritual leaders, verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. He's not a Jew, but he goes to the religious leaders of the Jews to seek his answer. He will find out who this threat is. 
And as he goes to the spiritual leaders, he asks them a theological question. He demands of them where Christ should be born. In fact, a little interesting side note for you, if you were to maybe pick up an interlinear Bible or look at the original languages here, Christ has the definite article before it. So it's very accurate to translate it where the Christ should be born. So his Herod, this Idumean man, this appointed king, bringing in the Jewish religious leaders and say, where is the anointed one supposed to be born? Where is the Christ? Where is the promised one supposed to be born? He has to know the answer from Scripture as to where the Messiah would come. Beyond the people consulted, secondly, we see the prophecy discovered. So we continue looking at the biblical identity. We see the prophecy discovered, verse 5, verse 6. They said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. There's those words from Matthew that we hear over and over again coming through the words of the priests and the scribes here. Thus it is written by the prophet, thou Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people, Israel. The priests and scribes are able to answer Herod's question. They've gone to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In fact, I know the words of it are familiar, but they are slightly different and additional. All that Matthew says in Matthew 5 is not all that, or in Matthew 2, is not all that Micah has said in Micah 5, verse 2. Micah 5 says it this way, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. And then this phrase is at the end of Micah 5, which the priests and scribes, left out in Matthew 2, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Because there's this ruler who's going to come, but he always has been. Jesus isn't just this other child that's been born. Micah is saying the one who would be born, the one who would come from Bethlehem, is one whose goings forth would have been from eternity, would have been from everlasting. In fact, I'll also note for you that Matthew makes another change. I believe perfectly okay as we understand inspiration, not if we were doing it. Uh, but in Micah 5, verse 2, Micah said, Bethlehem, you are little. You're insignificant. You're unimportant in terms of the towns. And it's out of this insignificant place. But as Matthew here notes that Bethlehem is that place, Matthew says, um, art not least among the princes of Judah, going, you are more important because out of uh, Bethlehem is where the one who would rule had come. We should keep in mind that idea of rule as this prophecy is communicated. In fact, the word that's used for rule is used in both noun and verbs here as you work your way through the text. In fact, again, let me just uh, point it out to you. It says, um, he that is to be ruler of Israel. Okay, obviously we read the noun that's given there, um, and it says he should be a governor that shall rule my people Israel, is in Matthew 2 uh, there. When we look at the word rule, it's um, the noun speak of authority to rule, like we would expect, a governor, someone who's in a position of power to go, you have the right to rule. But then as he unpacks it further and says, shall have the one who will be governor shall rule. That second word, rule, is the word that's often translated to shepherd, to guide, to lead. 
You know, the, the governor's going to come, the ruler's going to come, the authority's going to come, and he is going to lead in the way that a shepherd does. And I find that prophetically significant. I find that biblically important because of texts like Jeremiah 23, like Ezekiel 34, particularly verses 11 to 16 that we've looked at before. The word for shepherding, poimen, we get pastor from it, uh, can speak to leading and exercising oversight. But it speaks of more than just that and shepherding. It's watching out for, protecting, providing. And God had told his people in Ezekiel 34 particularly that he is done with the leadership of Israel. He's done with the shepherds of Israel. He's done with the rulers of Israel because they failed his people. And God there gave a prophecy in Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 to go, there will be a day where I will shepherd Israel. We're looking at Jesus, the one who is that shepherd, the one who is that ruler having come. The prophecy of Micah 5 verse 2 is fulfilled in Jesus' coming. These details are important for a number of reasons. On the one hand, it's simple, like very practically in the text, why is this detail important? The Magi need to know where to go. Okay, And if you're Herod, you need to know where to look. Where is the threat? So from a standpoint of location, these details are important. Later on, these details would be important in the defense of Jesus as the Christ. In John 7, 41 and 42, people are processing who Jesus is, and they think this can't be him because he's from Nazareth. Well, actually, he's from Bethlehem originally, and the rest of Matthew 2 is going to help explain how is it that he got from Bethlehem to Egypt and then to Galilee, up to Nazareth there. And Matthew 2 kind of defensively, apologetically explains all of that as well. But third, and we will keep hitting this theme in Matthew, these details are important for the fulfillment of prophecy. The deliverer, the Christ, has been born. Having looked at the worshipful inquiry, the fearful insecurity, and the biblical identity of Jesus, fourth, we encounter Herod's deceitful impiety. Verses 7 and 8, Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently, what time the star appeared? Okay. He, he brings the wise men in, the magi in, and he's having this discreet conversation with them to find out, when did, now when did that star show up? Kind of points to Herod's cunning. Why is that detail important? Like, when do I, why do I need to know when the star appeared? Well, by the end of the chapter, he's now got an age for which to look for this potential rival king, those he needs to deal with as potential rivals. He gives them these instructions in verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search diligently for the young child. And when you've found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Herod deceitfully feigns an interest that he presents as aligning with the same as the wise men. to go, I want to worship him too. And then it's clear that that is not at all in his heart or his intention, his motives. The trip for the wise men won't take long. Bethlehem's only six miles from Jerusalem. It's not going to be hard for them to get there. He says, go diligently, go find out this individual. Herod's interest is really protecting himself, protecting his interest, seeking to make sure that his life isn't messed up. Having walked through Herod's kind of deception, his false worship, his false interest, notice how strong the contrast is as we then come to verses 9 through 11 
and look at the rightful glory given by the Magi. The rightful glory. When they heard the king, they departed. Lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Even here again, yet just another detail where God miraculously guides. He's moved that star. The wise men have observed it. They've seen it. They've come to Jerusalem, tracking it down. Even along that, you think the star doesn't move again until after they've talked to Herod, after they've found out where, and they're told that until it came and stood over to where the young child was. God sovereignly worked to bring the wise men to this conversation with Herod, then to leave there and to continue to follow the star to exactly where Jesus was this young child was. Then we're told in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. I think we could say in light of the text and what follows that their worship was joyful. I like the way the Spirit of God has recorded it here for us. They saw the star, like, here's where the child is. They've been brought there. They're going to worship him in just a moment. And yet we're told they rejoice. They rejoice. Like, we struggle with just getting that far sometimes, right? Hey, you know what? I can rejoice. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice, understand that's the temple, but for us to go, you know what, God, this is, you're sovereign over my life. You've set these details. I can rejoice in what you've done. And yet, I like the fact that it doesn't just say, hey, they saw the star, they rejoiced, period. Right? We're told they rejoiced with joy. Right? We're told they rejoiced with great joy. Okay? Oh, actually, no, there's other details there, isn't there? They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It's like, how many layers can we help us to get that they are excited and thrilled that God has brought them to the place to meet the Messiah? And we can come in and go, yeah, Jesus came. We can meet tonight to celebrate the Lord's table, to do in remembrance of him and go, yeah, I suppose that's good. Yeah, maybe I should come to church tonight. And we lose the idea that God, the creator of this world, the eternal one, who we rebelled against, reached out in mercy, humbled himself to be born as a baby in this world, to live a perfect life being scorned and ultimately rejected by men, to die an excruciatingly painful death on the cross. And we struggle with just rejoice, let alone rejoice with joy, let alone rejoice with great joy, let alone rejoice with exceedingly great joy. There should be moments in our Christian walk where we rejoice with exceeding great joy, going, God, I am amazed and humbled at what you've done for me through Jesus Christ. Let it be instructive to us that the wise men's worship was joyful. Secondly, their worship was reverential, or we might say their worship was humble. Verse 11, when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him the physical demonstration to their worship. While they were magi, while they appear to be wealthy with the gifts that they are bringing, they prostrate themselves on the ground before a child. This wasn't a king sitting on his throne with his scepter in hand, his crown on his head, all of his subjects around. This was a child, a young child. Okay, And yet they fall down before him. There's a sense of reverence, a sense of awe. That again, in our culture today, you know, we, 
we think about our relationship with God and there's some real advantage to it where um, sometimes formality goes to the side and we're like, I just want to talk to God right where I am. And we can. That is wonderful that we have a God that we can relate to in that way who we can call Father, Dad. And yet, we do well to go, you know what, I'm going to get down on my knees. I'm going to talk to God in prayer just because I want to have a physical demonstration of how I am humbled before him, how I reverence him as I worship him even in prayer. Their worship was joyful. Their worship was reverential or humble. I think third, we could say their worship was sacrificial. It was costly. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Many seek to assign cultural meaning to these gifts, saying, okay, this is a priestly gift, and this is a royal gift, and this is to his death. Uh, we're really not given any indication of that biblically. Really, I think the impression we're supposed to walk away from rather than assigning details to each of those is to go, this cost. We do understand that very clearly in their day. I mean, we understand that in our day. Gifts of gold? Okay. We don't, maybe don't deal with frankincense and myrrh quite as much. But to go, here's what they brought, these gifts of value that they present to this child. We have brought this for you because we have come to worship you. Again, I think that ought to be instructive for us where God isn't just kind of in a compartment of our life where we give him a little bit of our time. But to go, God, with everything that I have, it was represented in a special right before we started looking at the word. God, everything I have, I am yours because of Jesus the Christ. I will give of my stuff. I will give up my time. I will serve. God, I, I don't want my worship simply to be easy and convenient and small and compartmentalized. God, I want to worship you for who you are. You are the creator who made me. You are the savior who gave your son for me. I don't need to be flippant or casual. God, I want to approach you with a sense of reverence, a sense of awe. I want to approach you with joy. I want to serve you in a way that costs, that recognizes your far surpassing worth. So again, I would ask you to consider your worship. Is it marked by humility? Where you're in reverence come before God? God, I'm not worthy of any relationship with you. Is it costly? God, I'm willing to give up my time in worshiping you. I'm willing to serve you and worship to you. I'm you willing to take the resources you give me and use them to worship you? Do we kind of play at worship? Eh, I can take it or leave it, maybe. Well, you know, I'm not really in the mood. I don't really feel like it. You know, God's always worthy of worship, whether we feel like it or not. <laughs> okay. Go, God, I just want to ascribe worth and value to you. You look at the text here, we see two very different responses. Someone who sees Jesus as a threat to his own personal convenience in life and will do whatever he can to marginalize that influence. And then you see people who've traveled a great distance who come to find Jesus and do so with incredible joy, incredible sacrifice, bowing themselves before their Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text and 
a reminder even in my own life of what you have done for us through your Son. God, for each one of us here that are believers in Jesus Christ who've been saved by faith in the finished work of Christ, having received your grace, God, I pray that our worship would look a little more like that of the wise men who seek you, who want to know you, who have joy because of relationship with you, who are willing to give and sacrifice because we want to see others glorify you as well. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to this earth to die for our sins so we could be forgiven and reconciled to you. We love you, recognizing that you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray.